Well, I miss you, Christ Community Church. It is, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is an interesting moment, but the, the Lord's hand is upon it, and as the pastors have reminded us time and time again, uh, this is not outside of God's will. And so we just get to rejoice in the fact that we get to experience what a lot of people end up having to experience for church. They have to huddle together as a family in their home. And uh, what a wonderful joy that we get, to, we get to join them in that, that we get to experience that so we know how to, to pray for them better. <clears throat> so my name is, if you're tuning in, you don't know who I am. My name is Daniel. I'm the worship pastor here. And uh, the series that we're in is the Gospel of John. It's called The Glory of the One and Only. And we've been in it for 26 or 27 sermons now. Um, but because... We're so deep into it, we need to kind of reevaluate where we are in the story. Uh, we, we derive meaning from context, and it's really important to remind ourselves where we are in, 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 in our stories, where we are in this story in particular. Because every good story has four fundamental components, four elements that make it a comprehensible narrative and not just a depiction or description of, of disconnected random events. I'm looking to the room because there's nobody here. <laughs> and uh, those four components are this. There's the beginning, which is, or, or the exposition. And that is, uh, that's where the, the characters are introduced, where the context is introduced, uh, and usually where the conflict of the story is introduced. So if you love the Lord of the Rings, this is Frodo in the Shire. This is him hanging out. This is Gandalf showing up. This is them discussing Bilbo and his adventures. And this is the introduction of the ring. I don't have the ring of power. This is my wedding ring. <clears throat> the, next port, the next element of a good story is the complication or the conflict. And as the conflict blossoms, it, it, it accounts for the main part of the rising action of the story. Um, we see the, in contrast to this rising action, this is where the, the character the, the internal character of the, of the characters we've met plays out. This is where we start to see them turn either good or evil or, or they're torn between the two. Uh, and this is, this is the whole story in the middle of The Lord of the Rings. This is the, the, the journey with the Fellowship of the Rings. This is Frodo and Sam going uh, to Mordor by themselves. This is them sneaking through Mordor. This is, this is all the rising action uh, and where the conflict plays out. And then there's the climax, the point at which the outcome of the conflict is finally decided. And it is the point of highest emotion. It's the hinging point of all the action. But again, from this point on, the conflict is decided. So this is Frodo and Gollum's fight in Mount Doom when they're fighting over the ring and whether the ring is going to you know, be destroyed or not. This is the, the, the peak of all of the action. And then there's the resolution or the consummation, and, and this is where the, the action starts to fall. It's actually called the falling action. Uh, it peaked in the climax, and now it's descending into some kind of landing. It's descending into some kind of, of resolution, whether that's a, a good one or a bad one, depends on the story. And this is Sam and Frodo being taken to the, uh, being picked up by the eagles, then returning to, to the Shire. Sam marrying the girl and Frodo going off to the, the Grey Havens. But these four elements, beginning, conflict, climax, and resolution, 
are used in communicating stories of all kinds, more than just fiction. Biographies, histories, forensics, even accounting uses the language of, of story to represent reality. We even use, we even try to figure out where we are in our story so that we can kind of predict the future, the coming climax, how the conflict's gonna play out and how, and, and try to engineer some results, try to, try to engineer a resolution that's to our liking. We all operate from some kind of story. So it is important to look again for where we are in this very historical, but also very theological story. So join me, John 19, starting in verse, the second half of verse 16, going into verse 17, it says, therefore they took Jesus away, carrying his own cross, he went out to what is called Skull Place, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross. The inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. So when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear this one, but let's cast lots for it to see who gets it. See, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple that he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty and a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So what do we do with a passage like this? How do we make sense of the ugly reality because this isn't just some fiction novel that we're reading in book club. Jesus actually died. So how do we find meaning here? Over the last few weeks, Pastor Ryan and Pastor Patrick have done a tremendous job of walking us through these moments leading up to the, the crucifixion. They've helped us get in the shoes of the disciples and walk around and, and feel the confusion of the Last Supper feel the crushing weight of Christ being betrayed by his loved ones, being abandoned by his loved ones. To, to, to 
recoil in horror over his humiliation and unjust treatment at the hands of the religious elite, and finally, the brutality and the evil that Rome is committing against him. And if we are not careful to identify where we are in the story, we can end up drawing all the wrong conclusions about this moment, just like the disciples did. You see, the disciples ran away in fear because they thought that all of this, all of the events that they have just walked through, they thought that this and the crucifixion was the resolution to the story. They likely thought that the climax of the story was when Jesus was walking around with all these huge crowds following him or when he entered into Jerusalem to the cries of, of Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And now seeing Jesus dead on a cross under a sign saying, this is your king. They were thinking that this is how it ends for all political revolutionaries. This is how it ends for even peaceful insurrectionists. And the Jews and the Romans thought that this was the resolution as well. But, and this is the main point of the entire passage, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the climax of the entire story. It is not the resolution. It is the climax of the entire story. And it's the climax of the story in three ways. The crucifixion is the climax of Jesus's earthly ministry. It's the climax of Jesus's earthly ministry. You see, the gospel of John is laid out in a steady march. It is a steady march to this moment. All of the rising action of the story leads to right here. And Jesus makes it plain in John 2 and in John 7 and in John 8 and in John 12 that his hour had not yet come. But at, at this dumpster fire of a miscarriage of justice, he recognizes, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You and I need to be careful because the same way that the disciples thought Jesus' earthly ministry was one thing, a, a political liberation that would lift the heel of Rome's boot off of the, the throat of Israel. We have the tendency to make Jesus' ministry about the, exclusively about the things that are important to us. So theology nerds will say that his primary ministry was teaching and revealing proper theology and right belief. The more mystical types say his, no, no, his ministry was focused on restoring our emotional intimacy with God and, and reestablishing our personal identity. And those focused on social justice say his ministry was to love and to serve the poor and the marginalized and the politically oppressed. But here's the thing, Jesus knows what his ministry is and he defines it for us. And here in the Gospel of John, he defines it by this moment. Right after the triumphal entry, what looked like a moment of climactic glory from all earthly perspectives, Jesus says he's going to be glorified by being delivered into the hands of sinful men to die. And then he says this, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
And then came, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you, because now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So did Jesus care for the poor and the needy? Yes. Did he engage with the injustice of political oppression? Absolutely. Did he teach about true theology and right belief? Of course he did. But Jesus's primary ministry was the cross, making atonement for sinful humanity and drawing to salvation all those who will be saved, conquering the world, sin, death, and the devil. Brothers and sisters, more than our health, our home, our community, or food, or water, or even toilet paper, our greatest need, our neighbor's greatest need, our world's greatest need is for the due penalty of our sin to be removed from our account, for our rebellion to be quelled and a peace treaty to be enacted, to have our hearts of stone removed and a heart of flesh with the word of God tattooed on it, the law of God tattooed on it, put in its place. We need to be returned to right standing with God. We need to be rescued And this is why we as a staff preach and teach and lead worship every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, knowing that this is your greatest need, knowing that we are helpless to meet this need. We are helpless to save you. And this is why our goal is to preach Christ our goal is to prick your conscience about Christ and to promote a response of faith in Christ because Christ came to meet this need and he can meet this need and the cross is the moment that this rescue, this need is assured for all those who believe. The crucifixion is the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry exactly because the crucifixion is the climax of God's plan of redemption from eternity past. Jesus isn't God's lame attempt to try to woo some people back to him. And then things got out of hand. And, and, and then God had to raise him from the dead because of the, the injustice of everything that was going on. We have seen Pastor Ryan and Pastor Patrick have done a great job of laying out. We've seen over the last four weeks Every time things seem out of Jesus' control, he is actually fully in control of that moment. Ironically, it is the people opposing Jesus. It is the people warring against Jesus who do not realize that they are acting to fulfill God's purposes, his purpose to redeem a fallen creation. And as we've gone through this series, if you go back and you watch, we see that the Gospel of John draws upon and links us to not just the other three Gospels, but to the entire Old Testament. Christ, we, we talked about this in, in chapter two, that Christ uh, is being recognized by John, who is the voice in the wilderness from Isaiah 40, as the glory that departed from the temple in, Ezekiel thir uh, in, in, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, recognizing that he's the glory returning to Jerusalem. 
We've seen Christ's claims to be the good shepherd connect us to Ezekiel 34, where God condemns the leadership of Israel for being bad shepherds, for treating their flock cruelly and not caring for them. And Jesus, and, and, and saying that I myself am going to lead them. We've seen Christ comparing himself to the bronze serpent that was lifted up, the bronze serpent that, that God gave as a mercy to the people of Israel who were justly suffering the consequence of their sin with all of these snake bites and, and these agonizing pains. And they put this serpent up and all who gaze upon him are rescued or delivered from this. And we've seen Christ in saying, I am the bread of life, contrast himself to the manna in the desert the man that only fed for a day, that only satisfied for a day. And Christ saying, I will give you eternal life. Seven times in the book of John, there is some variation of the phrase, blank had to happen so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Or blank happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. There's two in this passage alone. We have seen Jesus literally say, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them. And yet the scriptures testify about me. And we'll see later on on the road to Emmaus, Jesus takes people through seminary in showing that everything, everything was about him. So as we look to these Old Testament types, there's there's two roles, there's two capacities that Christ fulfills and they demonstrate that the crucifixion is the climax of God's plan of redemption. And the first is that Jesus is the new and the better Adam. Now we all know the story of Adam and Eve. We all know uh, about their failure to obey God's command and blessing in the garden. We know the, the chain of events that this kicked off. In fact, uh, in the story of God, this is the conflict. This is, the, this is where the conflict is introduced. And much of the rest of the story of, God, of the Old Testament is just the playing out of the conflict. And the conflict is, as descendants of Adam, you and I, we have an intimate relationship with darkness. Not only are we overcome by darkness, but we invite it in. We make it a meal. We introduce it to our parents. And Jesus says in John 3, verses 18 and 19, that this is the judgment. This is what we are condemned for, that the light has come and we have loved the darkness. But where Adam and we have disobeyed, at every point and in every way, Jesus obeyed God's command. He says, a bunch of times throughout the Gospel of John, I came to do the will of my Father in heaven. I only say what the Father in heaven has told me to say. I only do what the Father does. I, like, he is in sync with the Father. He's in perfect obedience to the Father. In fact, he obeyed so entirely that it took him through the vilest abuse and it now sees him hanging on a cross. And we see this radical obedience to God's law even while hanging on a cross. Jesus summarizes the law for the religious people, all the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He summarizes it this way. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. And on the cross, we see that Jesus' obedience to, to love God is genuine and total because it translates into the loving care of his mother. You and I can only imagine the bitter horror Mary must have been in. To see her robust craftsman of a son covered in blood and wounds, his back shredded to ribbons, hung on a cross, incapable to defend himself from the flies that were probably swarming all over him, wasting away in the sun, dying. If you put me in that situation, in Christ's situation, Christ's position, all I would want, all I would expect and demand is that my mother comfort me. And yet with Christ, we see that he comforts her, that he soothes her, that he honors her. Jesus literally obeys the fifth commandment before our eyes as he is dying on a cross. Jesus is the new and the better Adam. And by his obedience and by his death, he takes the old Adam's punishment and he drinks it down and he forever deals with the obligation of it. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, so then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act is justification, is their justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we celebrate that Jesus is our new Adam. But what's the second Old Testament type that we're gonna look at that, that, the, that the cross indicates is the, the culmination of, of God's redemptive plan? Mostly, most of us would immediately jump to the Passover lamb. We've been talking about it a lot in the last few Sundays. And this was the lamb that was slaughtered and whose blood was splattered upon the, the, the doorframe and the lintel of the house. Uh, and when the angel of death saw it, it caused him to pass over that house during the plague of the death of the firstborn while Israel was still enslaved in Egypt. And the festival that was being celebrated in Jerusalem was when Christ was crucified was the Passover. Pastor Patrick showed us last week that this was even the right time of day for the slaughtering of the Passover lambs. So yes, it is clear that Jesus is the fullest revelation of the Passover lamb, but there is another lamb that this story calls us back to. Another hill, another sun, and another sacrifice. The story calls us back to Abraham before the nation of Israel, before Moses and the law, before the Exodus, to Abraham. Abraham who had an only son, a son whom he loved. And in Genesis 22, God calls to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I will tell you. Traditionally, the land of Moriah is where Jerusalem is located. And traditionally, uh, in Jewish tradition, the mountain that they went to was the Temple Mount. It was actually where later on Jerusalem uh, 
the, the temple was, would stand. And so Abraham got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place that God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Abraham said to his young man, you stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. And then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. Does this sound familiar? A man marching up a hill in Jerusalem, carrying on his back the wood upon which he was going to die as a sacrifice? But what does Isaac ask as they approach the offering site? Uh, Dad, where's the, where's the lamb for this offering? And Abraham assures him that God will provide the lamb. And we all know that this story ends well. What ends up being sacrificed as a burnt offering uh, is not Isaac. God stops Abraham. And they look up and they see that there's a ram caught in the thicket. But it's a ram. And it's not a lamb. And Abraham prophetically names the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the sacrifice. And thousands of years later, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, the Lord does provide a lamb. He provides the lamb. He provides the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And God does not withhold his son, his only son, the son that he loves. He does not withhold him as a sacrifice that provides salvation for many, for me, and for you. Jesus isn't God's plan B. He is God's plan from eternity past. And the crucifixion is the climax of that plan. And thus, the crucifixion becomes the climax of all human history. I'm fascinated with history. I'm fascinated by the characters and their choices and the interconnectedness of, of all these events and what led to what. I just... I'm captivated by it. It's the only thing I did really well in, in school until, until physiology but, and theology. I'm pretty good at that too. Um, but despite how expansive the timeline or the diversity of characters or the region in which it happens in the world, most of human history is kind of the same thing. It's just fallen humanity attempting to get back into the paradise of Eden but all without submitting to God, all on their own terms. It's people pouring their lives out, pouring their people's lives out, pouring their enemies' lives out, trying to create a heaven on earth, but all without any heavenly authority. But no matter how hard they try, humanity can't get away from the fact that they were created with a purpose and a place. And they can't get away from the fact that things are not how they are supposed to be and they can't get away from the fact that they are unique, that they are image bearers of God and yet they reject God and his authority time and time and time again. For all intents and purposes, they eat the forbidden fruit because they would rather be God 
than be blessed by God. Remember, God's blessing to Adam and Eve came in the command to obey, to be fruitful and multiply, go into all the earth and subdue it, take dominion over over the earth, rule. And then he says, and eat of every tree in the garden except for this one. Adam and Eve, which is representative of all humanity, we are represented by Adam and Eve, desired equality with God rather than the blessing of God that comes through obedience. And as Romans 1 points out, in humanity's continual rejection of God, they become fools and are given over to their own degrading passions and worthless thinking and eventually become haters of God and inventors of evil. And the crucifixion is the epitome of this. In the cross, we see humanity's willful rejection of both God's authority and blessing, the rejection of God himself and the perpetration of the greatest evil in all of history. The cross that Jesus is hanging on, who was it intended for? Barabbas, a guilty man, who in a way represents all of us who are condemned, all, all of condemned and rebellious humanity. Jesus has gone out in the place of Barabbas. He has gone out in our place. He has gone out to become the curse so that we might receive the blessing. Lest you think that the, the crucifixion is the, is the pinnacle of, the, of, of humiliation, just being put to death, humanity seeks to reject and humiliate God even further during the crucifixion. The, the titleists, I don't think that's how you pronounce it, but I'm gonna pronounce it that way, otherwise I'll mess it up. The, the, the label that was written over Jesus's head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, that was not Pilate's backdoor attempt to kind of honor Christ because he felt bad about what he was doing. It was intended for further humiliation. It was saying, look what Rome can do to this tiny king and his kingdom. The dividing of his clothes right before the eyes of this dying man was intended to strip him of his dignity and show him that their tiny kingdom is being plundered. The sponge and the vinegar, this was likely not an act of mercy either. This sponge was likely the ancient equivalent of toilet paper from a nearby latrine. The cross is the place where man's rejection and rebellion find their zenith. And yet... In the crucifixion, we see God overcoming humanity's rejection and rebellion. We see Jesus centered between man's wrath and God's wrath, drinking down the enmity between both parties and bringing reconciliation. We see that the just penalty for our sin is eternally paid by God himself. We see Jesus as the new and better Adam we see that he's a man perfectly submitting to God. And we see Jesus being coronated and proclaimed as the king in all the languages of the known world and by both Rome and the Jews. You see, we've seen the ironic way, about the, the ironic way that the Jews recognized Christ as king in order to get Rome to kill him. 
But if you synopsize all the gospel accounts of Christ's crucifixion, if you bring them all together and kind of order the pieces together, what you see is that the Romans were mockingly taking Jesus through the coronation process of a new Caesar. In Rome, before a new Caesar was publicly presented as ruler, he would go into the praetorium. The praetorian guard were, his per, was, were Caesar's personal guards. And the first place that he would go is he would go into the praetorium where he would be crowned and given a scepter and all of the praetorian guard would hail him as Caesar and worship him, showing that they had loyalty to him. He wouldn't go out into public until he had the... the the, the backing of the Praetorian guards. What did they do to Jesus? They took him into the barracks of the guard. They put a crown on his head and a reed in his hand and they beat him and said, hail, king of the Jews. And then they marched him in a public procession up a hill to the cross. So you see, even though it was filled with vitriol and mockery, the crucifixion served as the coronation of King Jesus. And this was prophesied about back in Psalm 2, where it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, the Lord and his Christ. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is the inverted nature of the kingdom of God. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. This is why Paul says, if the rulers of this world had known what they were doing, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. This is the dividing climax of human history because from here onward, the end is absolutely assured. Christ is king and he will be king for eternity. When Jesus says it is finished, he is not only talking about his suffering. He is saying from this moment on, we are in the falling action on the way to the glorious resolution of the story. So Jesus is clearly the hero of this story. And we've identified that we are at the climax of the story, of these three intersecting stories that meet at the crucifixion. So who are we in the story? Are we the crowd being passively swayed by the current trend of the moment? Are we the religious leaders actively opposing the work of God while thinking ourselves holy? Are we the soldiers enforcing, uh, enforcers of a worldly system that is not just? Are we the disciples worried and hiding because we thought that the climax was the resolution? I say that we are the criminals who are hung on the cross beside Jesus. Both are guilty. Both are rebels. And both are destined to die. But one continued on with his love affair with darkness, hurling insults, taunting, and blaspheming Jesus. And the other saw the wonder of what Christ was doing, the glorious way that Christ took on death. And with what little understanding he had, he reached his heart out in faith and said, remember me. And Jesus said, done, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. It is finished. The debt you owed has been paid by me. These are the only two sides that exist when it comes to Jesus. The cross of the unbeliever and the cross of the believer. Every single one of us, whether it's five minutes from now or 50 years from now, every single one of us are destined to pass through death. But has your heart reached out in faith to say, remember me when you come into your kingdom? If you're an unbeliever, that, that is, it's, it's an easy and yet an incredibly difficult task to sort through where your heart is. But call out to Christ. He's his savior. He's his savior. He's, he's showing it here. He's a rescuer of humanity. And if you're a believer, it's important to think, where are you in your mind in the story of God? Do you still think that you're caught in the conflict of the rising action and that the end is undecided? Or do you see that all of this, the crucifixion, coronavirus, everything, is the falling action headed towards a final consummation? Is the it is finished of Christ a comfort to you? Because it isn't intended as a comfort to you. I want to end with uh, uh, the first question of what's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And right now, I, can't, I mean, if you are the disciples in this story, you are at a tremendous loss as Jesus hangs dying. And for many of us, we've never experienced empty shelves in a grocery store. We've never experienced uh, a, a command to quarantine ourselves in our homes. We've never experienced anything like this. For some of us, this may be the first Sunday that we have ever missed gathering at a church building. <clears throat> But the Heidelberg Catechism starts by asking this one question. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer to that question is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's my prayer for you today, that you would find comfort in Jesus' words, it is finished. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that you transcend boundaries of, of presence and, and technology and time. I thank you so much for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness to us even in the light of our rebellion and rejection of you, that you would go to the cross to make peace. God, I pray for those who, who do not know you and are filled with fear over the specter of death. God, that they would look upon what you've done in your life and on the cross and that their hearts would delight in you 
and that they would call out for salvation. They would be convicted of their need for you and that they would cry out to a savior who can save. And Lord, I pray for all of those who have made that confession, all of those who are, who are captured now in a moment of fear and uncertainty, that you would remind them, that you would make real to them, that they would see and feel and know and trust in a new way, that when you said it is finished, you guaranteed the outcome for them. Lord, we love you. We long to gather together again, but we long to be with you. And so we say, come quickly, complete the work, bring us to the resolution. And in the meantime, give us that wholehearted life talked about in this catechism, that wholehearted devotion of living for you. We pray this in your name, amen.